Let me open this in a word of prayer. Thank you, thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the invitation to follow Jesus. We receive it gladly today. In Jesus' name, amen. There we go. So, when did you decide to follow Jesus? And what changed when you made that decision? Or did anything change? Do you know that the whole gospel of Matthew is really just an invitation to follow Jesus? I've told you this a long time ago when I was visiting here, but years ago when Sydney was a little girl, she was out on the four-wheeler with my dad singing songs, and my dad was singing church songs with her. He was singing, I've decided to follow Jesus, and she stopped him and said, no, Pop, I have not decided to follow Jesus. And I appreciate the honesty. Um, I wish that kind of honesty was present with uh, all believers, no matter their age. If we could be honest and say, no, I haven't actually decided to follow Jesus. Because the truth is, if we have decided to follow Jesus, things will be different. Life will be different when we decide to follow Jesus. And we have to uh, really examine ourselves and say, have we made that decision to follow Jesus? Today, once again, we hear the invitation to follow Jesus. Before we get to the scriptures itself, I want to do what I've been doing, and that's uh, just letting you know where we are and how the, how the story is being told to us, how Matthew is arranging his materials. So here's, we're in chapters 8 to 9. Remember last week we talked about how there are 10 miracle stories in chapters 8 to 9? Well, here's what Matthew does. He gives you three stories of these miracles, and then he gives you some teaching regarding discipleship. Then he gives you three more stories of these miracles, and then he gives you teaching regarding discipleship. And then he gives you three more stories that actually contain four miracles, but, but three stories. So this alternation going on here, and what it, what it does is it sets up this atmosphere where you're watching Jesus in his power, and in his goodness, in his sovereignty, coming and, and, and doing things that nobody else can do. And then he's stopping and saying, follow me. He demonstrates his authority to speak, and then he speaks and invites people to follow him. And that's what we have here. So we're looking at the two sections there, the second and the fourth little blocks of material there, that are his teaching regarding discipleship. Okay, So here we go, getting into the very first one. When Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave, others, uh, he gave orders, not others, to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, one thing you want to notice about this passage is that follow, following is a key discipleship term in the book of Matthew. We've already seen it, actually, early on in the book of Matthew, right after you have this uh, introduction to the central theme of uh, going from chapter 4 through chapter 16, this, this idea of repent because the kingdom's here. Jesus says that in chapter 4, verse 17, and then he calls disciples. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he said to two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net, uh, he, he saw them, uh, and, and, and uh, I'm sorry, I got confused in my reading there, going too fast. He saw two brothers, Simon and Andrew, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me. I put it in different ink there because uh, actually the Greek is different, but it's the same idea. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they, they left their nets and followed him. Next story. 
And going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately, they left their boat and their father, and they followed him. That's how we get started here in this section of material. Jesus says, the kingdom's here. And then he turns to people and he says, follow me. And they leave their jobs and they leave their families and they follow him. That's where discipleship begins. That's what Matthew is saying throughout the gospel of Matthew to people. Follow me. Jesus is saying, follow me. Now, you might want to also note before we read further that that, uh, here we're dealing with a scribe. And a scribe was a highly trained teacher of the law. This was someone who was a prominent person in Judaism. His occupation was considered holy. He spent his time studying uh, and, and making the Bible accessible to people, not called the Bible back then, but, but he spent time doing things like that, teaching. He was a teacher of the law, a scribe. And you would think that when this guy comes to Jesus saying what he does, Jesus would be excited and the disciples would be excited. Whoa, teacher, he says, I will follow you. I'll take up the call and, and, and I will yoke myself to you and I will follow you even though... I'm a prominent person here. Even though I'm a leader of the people, I'm recognizing you now as the teacher, and I want to follow you. And you would think Jesus would be like, great, we've got a person of influence now. We've got somebody who will represent us well. They can't criticize criticize this guy coming on board like they can some of our other people. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus recognizes that he needs to put a pause in play. And so he says to this guy, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, I don't think Jesus means to discourage anyone from following him or try to turn people away. And in fact, he's exaggerating some here because Jesus does have a home base in Capernaum and he goes into people's homes and he stays there sometimes and uh, he receives funds and people support him and things like that. So, so you know, it's, it's like much of what Jesus says is hyperbolic. But then again, he did spend his time out and about without really a home. And many times probably not knowing where he was going to sleep that night. And uh, uh, he's not trying to say you have to be homeless to follow him. But this particular guy needs to know, uh, you may not be ready for this yet. And here's what I think that the major learning for us is. Following Jesus is more than just the commitment of hasty enthusiasm. You know, sometimes we come to church and we're all happy, we're all dressed nice, and we're all together for a a wonderful time in a cool environment and listening to to beautiful singing and singing ourselves and, and praying together. and Everything seems great. We're like, what a great church service. Let's go team. It's so nice to be together like this. And somewhere in the the midst of those kind of emotions, we might then say, oh yes, I'll follow Jesus wherever he leads. Because we're happy and excited. But Jesus might would look at some of us there and say, do you really know where I'm going to lead? What if it's not always as comfortable as it feels to you right now? What if I lead into places that are very difficult? Will you follow me there too? 
We do not do people favors. Okay, let, let me, I want to say this charitably and, and uh, put the emphasis in the right place. We don't do people favors by trying to recruit them to come to church. We don't do people favors by, by throwing a party for them to say, hey, just come to our church and be here with us. Because that's not teaching them what it means to follow Jesus. Now, we're happy for people to come to church, and we, we do want to reach out to people to come to church. That's a big part of, of walking with Christ, but that's not the story. That's not the whole story. And if we don't tell people up front that discipleship is costly, then they're going to face problems down the road that will likely destroy their discipleship. And we need to tell people right at the outset, this is a life change. This is not coming somewhere on Sunday mornings to brush shoulders with people. This is reorienting your entire life. This is what following Jesus is. And, and, and here's, the, here's the thing. Following Jesus is not difficult like like we're living some kind of bad life trying to trudge through. That's never it. Following Jesus is difficult, sometimes like, like shedding an old skin or learning a new way to live. My mother, as you know, she broke her pelvis and hip back, back in uh, January. And she's had to go through a very painful process of recovery. Uh, she had to be very disciplined and do all kinds of physical therapy in order to get strength back so that she could walk again. And so that she could be active again. And the, the process of relearning and re-strengthening her body was painful, but it was to get to a beautiful and wonderful place, right? That's what, that's what Jesus is doing for us. He takes us somewhere that's wonderful, but he doesn't just say, bypass everything and I'll, I'll beam you up over here. We learn to live with him, and it's painful because we have so many bad habits. We have so many twisted desires. We have so many things that we do that, that we've learned. We've been trained to follow someone who's not Christ, the way of the world. And that unlearning can be painful, but it's life, and it's good. That's the balance we have to strike when we talk about these things. Sometimes what Jesus says to us is intimidating and painful only because we haven't yet learned what's beautiful and good. For example, just with Jesus, if this guy follows him on the road, this scribe follows him, he's going to have to learn that he can't sit around and study the Bible all day like he's been doing, like I like to do. Uh, he's got to learn how to take up his cross and go with Jesus. When he, when he is with Jesus, he will learn how wonderful and beautiful that is. And he will know the great joy of it. But it's going to be change. And there are going to be difficulties along the way. Do you see, what, you see how that works? We're, we're moving towards something that's life. Jesus said, I've come to bring you life, and it's more abundant life than you've ever known. But he also says, know what you're going through. You know, this change is painful. And sometimes the pain is just in doing things that, that uh, we haven't learned to do yet. Loving people we haven't learned to love yet. Going into the homes... There's an old song that talks about following the, the, the paths of Jesus. It says, if he leads in the homes of the poor and lowly, that's where I'll go. Uh, and, and that may be something that we haven't learned. It seems very strange to us. Following Jesus wherever he leads, that's, that's the thing. And it will be painful sometimes, but it's learning to follow him into what's really good. 
So that, that's what he says to this scribe. He puts a pause on the enthusiasm of the scribe. And then we come to the next one. And he says, another of his disciples. Now, now we're not talking about a scribe. We're talking about one of the disciples. Not the twelve, but broadly speaking, loosely speaking, disciples. Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now, this was a biblical duty. This was a sacred duty. This was something that everyone would have thought was super important. And everybody here says, oh, yeah, of course. Bury your father. Now, I don't think we should think that his father was like lying in the dirt dead over there. And he's like, well, let me go dig a hole for him. <laughs> in fact, it may have been he's using a biblical idiom that expresses uh, a waiting for him to die kind of thing. Maybe he was near death, but he said, let me, let me wait for him to die. It could be a matter of months or years he's asking for. Basically, he's asking to delay following Jesus. But either way, the point is the same, and here's the point we have to hear. And we've made this point before here. You can't read the Gospels without making it multiple times because Jesus keeps saying it over and over. Jesus comes before our family. Follow me, Jesus said. And let the dead bury their own dead. Perhaps meaning the spiritually dead can take care of their own dead. Wow. I mean, this is a huge deal back then. When kinship, there's nothing more important in their society than their kinship bonds. But it's still a huge deal today. And it's a huge deal because a lot of times there's a watered-down version of Christianity that makes you think that family's the most important thing. And the church exists kind of to serve your family. And you come to church to get a dose of something good for your family, and then you take that out and try to live at your home in a good way. Look, that's great. We need to talk about strengthening our families, but the church does not exist for the sake of your family. Jesus comes before our families. And the truth is, if we follow him, unless we have really, really good and devout families, a lot of times we will probably disappoint our families. Now, some of you have such great families. That's never happened. Praise the Lord. Um, I'm happy for you. But... Uh, but truly, many times, many of us are going to disappoint our families just by following Jesus. And we have to decide up front that he actually is that important. That's what the gospel tells us. Repeatedly, Jesus makes this point. And we just like, we're blind to it. We put on blinders and we don't even read it. You can see it over and over in the Gospels. Jesus is calling people not to idolize the family. That's what Alexander Schmemann, a, a, a Greek Orthodox scholar, says in a chapter on, actually I think he's dealing with marriage, but he says that, that the greatest danger to the family today is not that we don't respect the family enough. The greatest danger to the family today is that we idolize it. You see, that's where something good becomes the enemy of what's greatest and what's best. We're not going to be blinded by somebody saying, let's go out and get drunk at parties, right? We might want to do it if we're not sanctified yet, but at least we know that's probably not a threat to what's really good. We know there's something that we should be seeking besides that. But people see family and they say, oh yeah, family, that's it. That's the thing. And it becomes a competitor for our allegiance and that's what an idol is, something that competes for our allegiance to Jesus. We have to put everything in its place beneath the lordship and dignity of Jesus Christ. That is the call to follow. We have to say it, we have to say it repeatedly just like Jesus did because we're in a world where people can't see it. So let me just ask you, have you assumed that you can follow Jesus and him not be the priority of your life? 
Because that's what this, this text gets us to. Family, sacred duties, anything else that comes before Jesus, that's in our way. That's an impediment to discipleship. Have you thought that you could follow Jesus and just do life like you've always done it? That you could squeeze him in the schedule? That's not the call to follow Jesus. The call to follow Jesus is to rearrange everything around him. And you still live your life, right? You still go to work. Jesus needs you to go to work. You still have a family and you love your family, but you do it from a different reference point. The reference point is not you and your goals and your desires, your family, whatever that is. Your reference point is Jesus and what pleases him, and then you move out from there into all these other things. And in Christian community, we help each other to get clarity on what that means for each of us individually. Discipleship, following Jesus, has to be the priority of our lives. Or else we won't know the goodness and the beauty of his fellowship. I mean, what would you trade to actually be near to Jesus? We're going to sing at the end of this sermon, we're going to sing, Nearer My God to Thee. Or Nearer Still Nearer, I think that's the song. It's the, it's the prayer of a pious person who's saying, I want to be nearer to Jesus. That's what this, this disciple had before him. It was the opportunity to, to let Jesus be someone he admired over here and maybe follow him when he could. Or it was the opportunity to, to say, I'm sorry to my family, but I've got to go. Because this opportunity to be with the one is here before me. Life has to be different. To receive kingdom life. Sometimes people say, oh man, I'd like to have a better prayer life. Do you know you can't have a better prayer life unless you have a kingdom life? You can't just suddenly have a prayer life unless your life is arranged differently. There are all kinds of little choices that will go into that. But it is the call that Jesus places before us. Perhaps you've thought that you could postpone following him. He understands how busy you are. And maybe he's looking at you this morning and saying, you, follow me. It's the beautiful invitation. Okay, we're going to skip ahead to chapter 9 now, to the second block of teaching here. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew. Man, this is so beautiful. Sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. Now you have to know, I know you, many of you probably heard things like this before, but you have to know what a tax collector was in that society. They were people nobody liked. Despised people, viewed as collaborators with the Roman occupants and with their aristocratic partners. They, I mean, we just can't, we, we're not an occupied people, so it's hard for us to understand this. But imagine somehow if some Arab country had captured us and put people here, representatives of, of, of them. It doesn't have to be Arab, you know, I'm just choosing something that is, something that would bother people probably more than a lot. Um, um, and, then, and then we have people here who start teaming up with them to do something that hurts the Americans. It's something like that that, that you would feel. Maybe in Texas, I should say. It's the rest of the country occupies Texas. And then some of the Texans start going over. And then doing things that were not good. Like, like first of all, the taxes were exorbitant anyway. And so you were already just representing the powers that were 
stealing money from people, taxing them. But then the tax collectors sometimes would, would take extra money so that they could take care of themselves. They would take bribes, do things like this. They were just known as dirt. People despised them. It is utterly remarkable that Jesus comes to Matthew, one of those guys, and looks at him and says, you follow me. And Matthew got up and followed him. Jesus just doesn't always do the things we think he should do. He is thinking on a different level. He's playing chess while the rest of us are playing checkers. He's just, he's moving around. He sees things that other people don't see. And he's, he's so brilliant and so kind. And he just makes decisions that people don't understand. I mean, he didn't even think about how upset his other disciples were going to be when, when he brought Matthew in. And they're like, what? We thought you chose us because we were special. Because we were, we were the, the good, you know, we're kind of poor, but we're good. Now you got, you got this guy coming in. What are you thinking, Lord? I thought, you were, I thought you were a holy man. You were restoring Israel. And they had to get rid of the idea that they could understand. Jesus, or, or maybe a better way to say this, they had to start thinking like Jesus thought if they were going to understand. Because Jesus doesn't look at things like we look at things. He even goes to the oppressors. Of course, he's helping the oppressed all the time, but he even looks at the oppressors and says, hey, you, you come follow me. And the great mercy of his heart shines through when he calls people like Matthew. No wonder then that Matthew throws a party for him and invites all his tax collector friends and says, guys, Guess what? The holy man, the guy who's out there healing and doing things that, that nobody else has ever done, he just came and he asked me to be his disciple. Come to my house. He'll meet you there. And so many tax collectors and sinners came. And they're reclining with Jesus. I mean, we don't understand this in that world. Who you ate with said so much about you. It was like, I am with these kind of people. These are my kinds of people. This is my, my honor reputation. I'll stake it with them. And Jesus does that with the tax collectors and the notoriously sinful people. In other contexts, we see it's prostitutes who are coming. And people cannot get their heads around this. I wonder if it's not incidental that Matthew includes his own calling in a context where people are being healed. Right before this, there's a paralytic who's brought to Jesus. And Jesus heals him and he forgives his sins. And then Matthew says, and Jesus called me. Because you see, part of the healing, one of the main parts of healing that Jesus does for people is he forgives them and he welcomes them. And then he doesn't just do that, though. He takes them and he puts them into ministry. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? You know Cruz's story? I know Cruz has been here for a long time. Y'all know his story? You wouldn't think Cruz, 15 years ago, 10 years ago, you wouldn't think he'd be a minister. But that man's a minister of Jesus today. Yes, that's right. He should be on stage with like gun, Guns and Roses. Whoever, that's from my childhood. I don't know who it is. 
And I mean, I could start going around this room because I, I, I know a number of you and your past. And Jesus didn't just say, okay, you can come to church. He took you and put you into ministry. That's what he did for that demon-possessed man. Remember that when he healed him? He said, you go and you evangelize. Tell all your family and friends about me. That's what Jesus does for people that people, other people can't stand sometimes. He takes them, people that are notorious sinners, he takes them and puts them in the ministry. When the kingdom comes, we find that God wants to come close. The Pharisees' purity program was separate from people. Jesus comes and says, no, God's coming close to you right now. God's coming close and we'll have a party with the sinners. Of course, they don't understand it. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? I mean, what in the world? He said he's a holy man. But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Now, I want you to, say, to know that, that this isn't just for Jesus. This is for the church. This is a template for ministry that we're given here. This is a model for ministry. We are in the field of medicine. Spiritual medicine. We are healers. That means that we aren't people running from the problems. Right? Jesus said, if you're well, you don't need a doctor if you're sick. I know sometimes people here call, call Steve or call Craig if you're sick, if your child runs into a wall and busts their head open, whatever. I bet very rarely, Steve or Craig, I bet very rarely any of us here in the church call you and say, hey, want y'all to know I'm doing great. <laughs> Just want to call and tell you, man, I'm doing great. My body is just awesome. Right? You don't call a doctor when you're well. You call a doctor when you're sick. And Jesus knew there were people around him who were sick. And they wanted to get well. They needed to get well, but they hadn't been shown how they could get well. And they had missed the prophecy of Hosea. They had missed the essence of the kingdom. So he tells them, go and learn what this means from Hosea. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And I came to call not the righteous, but the sinners. See, that mercy drives Jesus' mission, and it drives it today. It drives us together. Separating, condemning, that's not the religion of Jesus. Coming together with the sick, the hurting, the lost, the simple. That's the religion of Jesus. Listen to these words from Will Willimon. He's written a, a great book on Jesus called Why Jesus. The church on Sunday morning is meant to be the party before the party. And then he goes, he talks about how Jesus was revealed in the breaking of the bread in Luke chapter 24. And he said, the same miracle happens on most Sundays in most churches. Not only when we eat the bread and drink the wine of the Lord's Supper, but also when we look at, that, at a ragtag group of losers. That's you guys. It's me too. Who show up for the feast. We see Jesus partying with the losers. 
Why, Jesus? We look at the faces around the Lord's table on Sunday, and they are looking back at us, no doubt knowing our multiple foibles and desecrations. It's then and there that we can well believe that Jesus was murdered because of his behavior at parties. Jesus was crucified for the company he kept. He still is. See, Jesus went to parties with sinners because he knew the heart of God. And he knew that those sick people needed help. And a lot of times the people who think they're righteous and think they're holy, they don't understand that. And they say, why are you doing that still today? But when we know the heart of Jesus, we understand what it is to come to this table with people and say, we're the sinners gathered together at the feet of the cross. That's discipleship, following Jesus in mercy, following Jesus to the places where others don't go. Okay, last part of this, this text. Despite all their differences, oh, well, I'm sorry, let, let's just read this. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we fast and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Now this is a remarkable teaching here. You may not grasp it at first because of cultural differences, but this is really amazing. The question that John's disciples and the Pharisees asked, and, and there were a lot of differences between John's disciples and the Pharisees, but they agreed on this. If you're preaching repentance, you should be preaching fasting. Fasting and repentance went together in the Old Testament. Read the book of Jonah just for an example, and you'll see where the people of Nineveh, when they repented, they're tearing their clothes and they're fasting. Those things go together. Jesus is preaching repentance, and John preached repentance as well. The Pharisees believed in it as well. They're saying, you're preaching this, but why, why aren't they fasting? And Jesus could have answered by saying, well, I've already taught about fasting. You know, you're misunderstanding me. They could have answered by saying, well, you got to know that we're not, I'm not for externalism and external things in religion. And he could have said something like that. But that's not what he says. Jesus says, can the wedding guest mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? This is a striking teaching for at least two reasons. For one reason, in the Old Testament, the bridegroom is basically God. And the people are waiting for God to come as the bridegroom. And Jesus associates himself with God in saying this. The bridegroom is with you. The second reason it's remarkable is because of the joy that Jesus implies is associated with his ministry. He thinks a wedding and a wedding party is a good analogy for his ministry. And he's saying, look, I'm here. And fasting is inappropriate. That's utterly arrogant unless you're Jesus. <laughs> unless you are the bridegroom. You see, the fasting in the past would have been fasting maybe for the bridegroom to come. Fasting for God to show up in some way to heal and to help. But Jesus is saying, I'm already here. So you don't fast right now. This is a time of joyful celebration. Now, he adds that the bridegroom's going to be taken away. And that's referring to his crucifixion, I think. And in that, in that time, that it is appropriate to fast. And I'm not going to take the time to, to nuance all of this. But, but the idea, the big idea here is that Jesus' presence is a joyful presence. And that's what his ministry brought. It was inappropriate to fast in the face of that kind of beauty and goodness, that kind of joy. Jesus is saying, we're going to party because I'm here. And the last part 
of this passage. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Okay, now, let's uh, just talk about this for just a second. The, the imagery here, we might not be familiar with it, but it's a... Um, I don't know if any of you have ever sewn uh, patches on your garments. Probably some of you have. But the idea is that if you sew a new patch on a garment that's old and then you wash it, it's going to mess it up because the old garment's already shrunk. But the new garment, the new patch has not shrunk. So when it shrinks, it's going to tear away. There's going to be a, a worse tear made in the garment. You can tell I know a lot about sewing. <laughs> Wineskins. This idea is that the wine is put in new into a, into a flask, into a container, and they were, they were made so that they could expand, and as it fermented, the wine expanded. But imagine then a container that's already expanded, but it's empty, and you fill it with new wine that needs to expand again. Well, it's going to burst the container, right? It's like a balloon. If we blew up a balloon, and uh, you can't blow any more air into that balloon without the balloon exploding, that's what Jesus, that's the imagery here. Now, this passage, I just want to say some things carefully about it. It's the favorite verse of anybody who wants to change things at church. We need new wineskins. We need to get rid of the old wineskins. And you can preach it with a loud hurrah. But we need to, to proceed carefully, I think, when we think about what the what the message of this passage is. First, the first thing I would want to note about this passage is that many times there are good reasons for what is already being done. And Jesus is not saying get rid of the good things that are present. It's not just about every wineskin that's in place is bad. Even what the Pharisees had done had begun as a good thing, I'm sure, seeking holiness, right? And we want to be people who seek holiness, too, and that's a good thing. The danger is sometimes that the good, a good thing becomes bad as it, it takes our eyes off of the best thing. And uh, so just as a, as a fair point, we want to start by noticing that sometimes good things are in place or things that are maybe bad, they're in place for good reasons. But second... Uh, Notice that the emphasis here is on the wine. The emphasis here is on the new wine, not the wineskins. So this is not a blank check, and I've probably been one of these people, okay? But this is not a blank check for every zealous, dissatisfied church member to say, we got to change things. Every innovative person who wants to be on the cutting edge and say, hey, we got to get rid of the old wineskins. we got to do something different. And then the next year it's something else different. And the next year it's something else different. That's not what this is. It's not an emphasis just on, hey, we need to change the wineskins. The emphasis here is on the wine, on the new wine that Jesus is bringing. And the question we have to ask is, do we have the new wine? If the container was appropriate for what it contained then you'd leave it alone. But the question always for us is, do we have that new wine? And 
are we willing to do whatever is necessary to make sure that wine is valued? I hope this is making sense. And particularly in this context, uh, the new wine he's talking about just immediately, although it could have a broader application, it's just the joyful mercy that he's extending to sinners. And the wineskins of judgment could not contain that joyful mercy that was coming with this new wine. That's what we want to start with, is just say, what is the new wine? It's Jesus. It's the good news. That should guide our decisions. Okay, so now, with that in place, let me say that an appropriate focus on the new wine that Jesus brings will sometimes lead us to change. There will always be times when we see that some things need to change because of the good news itself, because the gospel is going forward, because of the, the, who Christ is and what he's bringing. Some things will need to change, and let's just face it, many times people are hesitant to change in churches, not because of the gospel, but because they've fallen in love with old wineskins. And we want to be aware of that potential problem, and we want to be sure that's not who we are. We don't want to be people who fall in love with wineskins. People who fall in love with containers. So there will always be needs as things change in society, as we're trying to contextualize the gospel in each generation. There will always be need for changes. The question is, is which ones and why? And when we make those decisions, we want to make it based upon the gospel, based upon the good news, based upon the new wine. In this context, based upon showing mercy to sinners. Showing mercy to the outcast. If something's in the way of that, it probably needs to change. Always because of the new wine that Jesus brings. Do you know what a good reason for changing things at church is? The greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's when we change things. When we see that this advances his glory. And it's for his good. Not because we're just dissatisfied and we're always looking for changes. That's just a recipe for for problems in churches, for tensions. But when we actually have our hearts and minds set on the gospel, on the new thing that Jesus brings, and we understand what that is, and we're really seeking to live that out, then, hopefully, with hearts and minds in the right places, changes happen that are good. And we see them as good because we see their connection to this thing we love already. It's the message that Jesus brings. It's Jesus himself. I hope that makes sense. I tried to to specify carefully with that. The overall context here is an invitation to follow Jesus, an invitation to follow him when it's hard, an invitation to follow him into places where other people don't go, an invitation to follow him as a church when things need to change. It's just this invitation, this beautiful, powerful invitation that Jesus gives us to follow him. And today, he's offering it to you as well. Let me pray. Lord, teach us to follow Thank you for your word and for your invitation, your kindness to us that welcomes us into your kingdom and into ministry. Please, Lord, show us the way forward in following Jesus and let every person here today know that it is truly possible to walk with Jesus in this world. We pray in his name. Amen.